Good morning. Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things also we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man... <clears throat> does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you as always in utter dependence, knowing that you alone are able to make us see and respond to this powerful teaching that you've so graciously given to your church through the Apostle Paul. We ask you to do your perfect work in our minds and hearts as we ponder Paul's words, Father. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I taught on this same chapter several years ago, I titled that message Epistemology 101. <laughs> the word epistemology is a fancy word with a pretty simple meaning. It's, it means the study of how we know what we know. But the reality is that that word is it, it's dealing with something much more undefined uh, than what Paul is talking about in this magnificent chapter. 
See, he's not, he's not talking about how we know the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow, borrowed that from Monty Python, or the, or the molecular weight of water, or what car we should buy when our, when our present one gives up its last gasp. Paul is talking about how we know the deep things of God. And beloved, what God sets before us through Paul in this chapter makes it one of the most clarifying, simplifying, mission-critical passages in the whole Bible. We need to know what this passage declares. In verses 1 through 5, Paul drives home his earlier declaration that in the message of the gospel, we bear the wisdom of God and the power of God. He begins chapter 2 by restating in different words something that he said in chapter 1, verse 17. There Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now in the first part of chapter 2, he says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Remember that phrase, the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That which Paul delivered to the Corinthians, and which he preached in synagogues and on streets and in homes throughout the Roman Empire, that which Paul refers to here as his message and his preaching, was none other than the testimony of God. In other words, God's testimony, not Paul's. The word testimony is the same word that's often translated witness. Here it refers to the case that God has clearly presented across the ages through his faithful prophets and apostles and through Jesus himself, the truth concerning the crucified and resurrected Christ, the Son of God and Savior of mankind. It's the same witness that Jesus spoke of in John 5, 24, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has already crossed over out of death into life. Jesus was talking about his father's testimony concerning him. Later in this great epistle, in chapter 15, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. See, Paul's saying, it's not my message. It's only mine because God handed it to me. And then he, said, he tells us what that message is. It's a series of that's. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as if to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The gospel that Paul preached, the gospel which every person must believe in order to be saved, that gospel is a message. It is a set of propositions presented in words. Let me say that again. The gospel is a set of propositions presented in words. The gospel of Jesus Christ is communicated to the mind and heart of a sinner in words. It's not possible for a person to believe in Jesus as his or her Savior if that person does not believe that Jesus is who the words of the Bible declare him to be and that he did the things that the words of the Bible say he did. Throughout the first two chapters of this great epistle, 1 Corinthians, just as throughout the whole New Testament, the word of the cross, the good news that God commands every human being to believe is precisely that. It's good news. It's a message. While the actions of us who bear that good news to lost people must adorn and not contradict the message, the simple reality is that no man will ever be saved through our actions without hearing and believing our message. It's only our message because God handed it to us to preach. That means if a church sends its kids on a mission trip to another country and all they do is help people build houses for the poor and they don't share the gospel, it's not a missions trip. Beloved, the gospel that we preach is propositional truth revealed in words that God has entrusted to us. You might be thinking, well, duh. It's, that's intrinsically obvious. So go on and get on with it, Tom. <laughs> I'll ask you to stick with me. The words that we bear to this world are not the spiritual connotation words of man-made religion. I got that phrase from Francis Schaeffer, whose books I read voraciously when I was a young believer, a young man and a new believer in Christ. What Schaeffer meant by that phrase, spiritual connotation words, was flowery, pious-sounding words, spiritual-sounding words that pretend to communicate transcendent truth, but that are really no more than verbal sleight of hand. They're manipulations. There's a whole lot of that kind of verbiage flying around in our culture. But the gospel that we preach is nothing like that. It is the word concerning Jesus Christ, breathed out by the Holy Spirit through human, ag human agents of his own choosing and calling. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It transcends our experience and our natural logic. But beloved, it's not complicated and it's not obscure. It also hasn't changed. 
Having said all that, in verses 6 through 9, Paul makes it very clear that the message we preach to this world is definitely not of this world. It's as foreign to this world as foreign gets. The fact that God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, has infused the simple gospel message with the power to save lost sinners does not mean that everyone who hears that message with their physical ears is going to be saved. It's entirely possible for a human being to hear the Spirit-breathed words of the gospel presented very straightforwardly through you or someone else, or even to read those words directly from the Bible without believing them. For most people, for most people, that response of unbelief, of rejection of the gospel is not merely possible. It's inevitable. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That's what Paul is getting at here in verses 6 through 9. He already said in chapter 1, verse 19, that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, and that's not something they can fix. Here he says that the message he preached is still hidden to most of humanity. He says, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, that is not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away perishing. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. What things are those? Paul's talking about the same message that he's been talking about since chapter 1, the word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying that message, that good news, still a mystery. It's still hidden to all except those to whom God has unveiled it. But if what I said earlier about that message is accurate, then how can that be? If the gospel is a straightforward set of propositions about Jesus in intelligible words, about who he is and what he's done, then either those propositions are sensible and accessible to the human mind, or they aren't, right? Well, the problem with that assessment is that it ignores the impact of the spiritual death of all mankind in Adam. That brings us to the last part of this very clarifying passage, verses 10 through 16. 
And what we discover in those verses is that without the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, no man can or will respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the foundational importance of these last seven verses can't possibly be overstated. Right here is where God, through Paul, lays out for us what makes one man hear and understand the word of the cross, finding in it the wisdom of God and the power of God, while most of humanity sees nothing there but foolishness. Right here is where God, through Paul, makes known the means by which human beings come to personally know God. And friends, <laughs> God's beautiful answer is not what, but who. His deeply personal answer is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He is how we come to know God personally. God designed the mind of man to be his gateway for communication of his thoughts and his ways to the minds and hearts of his image bearers. The death of the spiritual life of man at the fall of Adam closed, chained, and locked that gateway of the human mind. The spiritual death of man cut off man's mind and thus man's heart from relationship with the Holy Spirit who alone reveals the thoughts and ways of God to man. Without that connection with the Spirit of God, the mind of man is a vast wasteland for wisdom and a vast playground for foolishness. The mind of man was not designed to reason properly apart from constant connection with the mind of God. And it is the, it is the Holy Spirit of God who makes that connection between God's mind and our minds. Listen again carefully to verse 14. Paul says, But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot, he cannot, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The Holy Spirit has to be in the mix. God created us to live as agents of God who serve Him well because we know Him well, to live in intimate personal knowledge of Him and relationship with Him. But you can't have intimate, intimate personal knowledge of and relationship with someone whose thoughts and ways you cannot know. How many people do you call really, really close friends whom you don't know at all. That's what Paul says is true of the natural man in reference to God, by which he means the unregenerate man. Beloved, nothing, nothing in all of God's creation has so perfectly or vividly displayed the thoughts and ways of God to mankind as the word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
In Exodus chapter 34, after Moses asked God to show him his glory, God placed Moses in a hollowed out part of a cliff and then God passed by in front of Moses. But God hid his physical glory from Moses. The glory that God did reveal to Moses that day was the glory he proclaimed, the glory of his character. The same glory we behold in Jesus, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. As God passed by in front of Moses, here's what God declared to Moses. He said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast covenant love and truth, who keeps who keeps covenant-keeping love for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we behold the flawless demonstration of everything that God declared to Moses about himself that day on that cliff. We behold at the cross God's compassion, God's grace, God's forbearance, the abundance of, of God's covenant-keeping love, the unchangeableness of God's truth. And at the very same time, at that very same cross, we behold the demonstration of God's holiness, His hatred of sin, and the inevitability of his judgment of sin and of sinners. But that incomparable display of God's character, God's thoughts, and God's ways in the person and completed work of Christ is as inaccessible to the mind and heart of sinful man as the surface of the sun is to the human body. Until God makes a sinner like you and me able to hear, understand, and believe that glorious revelation, the simple truth of the gospel is completely out of reach for every sinner. But the serious mistake that some Christians make is in concluding that because the gospel is so elusive to the world, it must therefore be complicated. And that's just plain wrong. What makes the gospel foolishness to those who are perishing is not that what it proclaims is complicated or obscure, as I said before. The gospel is simple, and it is presented with crystal clarity in God's Word. It is simple enough for a child to understand and believe. And many, many of us know children who have understood and believed it. The insurmountable hurdle that keeps most of humanity from receiving the gospel is not that it's hard for human beings to understand the propositions that are contained in that message. The problem is man's assessment, man's appraisal of that message. The word appraisal just means how we measure and evaluate the message. 
The problem is that the message is, as Paul says here in verse 14, spiritually appraised. Spiritually appraised. And fallen man has no spirit by whom to appraise it. So his appraisal is completely wrong. On the other side, what makes the, what makes the gospel the wisdom of God and the power of God to those who are the called of God is the calling. The calling of God is the mighty and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that transforms the mind and heart of a person who has been blind and deaf to the truth so that he now hears and sees and believes the truth. That's precisely why it would have been of no value to the Corinthians if Paul had come to them with cleverness of speech or superiority of speech or persuasive words of human wisdom. No amount of man-derived wisdom or persuasion will ever make the gospel of Jesus Christ anything but foolishness to a lost human being because mind work does not breathe spiritual life into a spiritually dead man. As we saw last week, this is all very purposeful on God's part. The foolishness of the gospel to those who are perishing is by God's design. That's because the salva salvation of man has to be God's doing entirely and not man's. Listen one more time to verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 2. I'm going back to that because it really helps inform what's going on here in verses, six, uh, verses 10 through 16. Paul says, verse 4, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, listen, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. When Paul says there that his message was presented in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, some people say that means he did a bunch of miracles. I don't think that's what he's saying. Yeah, he did miracles, but I don't think that's what he's getting at here. The demonstration of Spirit and of power was displayed through the faith of the Corinthians. Many, many Corinthians, including Jews and Gentiles, came to faith. The demonstration of the Spirit and of power was displayed because people came to believe the message even though the messenger was unimpressive. And that's intentional on Paul's part and on God's part. That transformation was by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the word, the message that Paul proclaimed. Paul talks about that same power in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 when he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. What treasure? The light of the glory of, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what we bear to the world. The knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. 
the Holy Spirit has deliberately and strategically infused the message, not the messenger, with his wisdom and his saving power so that all the credit, all the glory for the salvation of every person who comes to trust in Jesus will be placed where it belongs, in God alone. What does that mean for you and me? Well, for one thing, it means that when you open your mouth to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost person, you're just an instrument in the hands of God. It's the message, not the messenger, that possesses the power of God to save that lost soul by the work of the Holy Spirit. Just make sure it's His message that you're proclaiming. It's really not hard to do since it's actually a wonderfully simple and straightforward message. All right, so by God's design and unchangeable decree, the gospel remains a mystery to all except those to whom God chooses to unveil it by the gracious calling of the Holy Spirit. Now let me make one more pass at this because it's critically important. Since we all start out lost in darkness, spiritually dead in our sin, just like every person since Adam, how do we move from unbelief to belief? How does someone who's utterly incapable of seeing the word of the cross as anything other than foolish, foolishness come to receive it as the wisdom of God and the power of God? God's answer is very simple. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God to give spiritual life to the spiritually dead. He opens the eyes, the ears, and the hearts of lost sinners to receive what we all once called foolishness. Now, what is it? What is it that the Holy Spirit miraculously reveals to men through the word of the cross? <laughs> God's answer to that question is nothing short of staggering, beloved. His answer should leave us awestruck and grateful to him with a gratitude that we can only begin to adequately express. Here are verses 10 through 13, and to keep Paul's thought together, I'm going to start with verse 9. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, for to us... God revealed those things through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Isn't that marvelous? And then he says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us from God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. Spiritual thoughts, with spirit, the spiritual thoughts of God with spiritual words. What is it that the Holy Spirit has caused us to know? the deep things of God. 
the very thoughts of God. Things that only the Spirit of God knows. The things freely given to us by God. All that God has prepared for us who love Him. In the opening verses of 2 Peter, Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What, what did Jesus say eternal life is in, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3? He said, this is eternal life that you may know that they, his disciples, may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us Everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these, by His glory and excellence, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. What has the Holy Spirit given to us through the incomparable word concerning Christ? He has given to us the true, intimate, personal knowledge of Him who called us to Himself. Through that, that true, personal knowledge of God, God has given to us everything we will ever need for life and godliness. He has made us partakers of the divine nature. How do we come to know the deep things of God? By the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word that He wrote. Not, not by the work of the Spirit apart from the Word. When I hear a Christian speak of the work of the Spirit in his life without speaking of the Word of God, I see red flags all over the place. In John 14, when Jesus promised his disciples that he would not leave them as orphans, but that the Father would send the Holy Spirit to be with them and in them, he said to them, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Here in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things also we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, just like Jesus said would happen combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, the spiritual thoughts of God with the spiritual words of the Bible. Paul is saying the same thing Jesus said about the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit authored and finished the written revelation of God by delivering that revelation through God's prophets and apostles to God's people. In what form, in what form did that revelation come? Paul tells us, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, combining the spiritual thoughts of God 
with spiritual words. Spirit-breathed words. Words that are spiritually appraised, which makes perfect sense, considering where they came from. In every generation of the church, beloved, there is a renewed assault on the sufficiency of the scriptures, the Bible. In our generation, that assault has the added momentum of mass distribution at a level never available in any previous generation. Christian bookstores and sponsored Christian radio and TV broadcasts in our age generate far more revenue through the dissemination of books and messages that systematically undermine the sufficiency of the Bible than through those that celebrate the sufficiency of the Bible. How does such content undermine the sufficiency of the Scripture? Well, how would you undermine the sufficiency of anything? By declaring it to be insufficient. And that's what such teaching does. It declares in no uncertain terms that the Bible is not sufficient for Christian life. Such teaching insists that in order for the believer to have the deeply personal relationship with God that God intends for him or her to have, or for the believer to be fully equipped to live the Christian life really well in the minefield of this world, God has to have more to say to that believer than the Holy Spirit has said through his written word. That's a lie. Beloved, that's a lie. If the Bible is true, that's a lie. Look again at the magnificent promises in this passage, beloved. To whom has God already revealed things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him? To, to Paul individually? No. To us, plural, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Who has been handed the deep things of God? The whole church of Jesus Christ. Who does Paul say has received the Spirit who is from God that we might, we might know the things freely given to us by God? We all have. How has the Spirit made those things known to us? By combining the spiritual thoughts of God with the Spirit-breathed words of Scripture. And what is the Spirit-breathed, Spirit-illumined, Spirit-empowered, living and active Word of God sufficient to accomplish in the life of every child of God? Well, God's told us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, that means sufficient, equipped for every good work. Okay, so which of the works that God intends to accomplish through us as his redeemed children are we not equipped to do 
by the Spirit-breathed Word of God that has been given to the whole church of God? The answer is, none of those works. See, we've been equipped for all of them. All of us have. 2 Peter 1, which you already read, the precious and magnificent promises of God revealed by the Spirit to all the saints impart to us what? Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true, intimate, personal knowledge of Him who called us. That personal knowledge of God makes us partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Beloved, how is that not enough? Brothers and sisters, if you are looking around or even asking God for something more than His Spirit working through His already revealed Word to save your neighbor or to save your child, to free you from crippling fears, to equip you to be a bold ambassador for Christ, to be an excellent spouse, to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ so that the church is strong for its mission, then I implore you to stop looking around, stop asking for something new, and start agreeing with God about the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit who works through the living and active Word of God to give us absolutely everything that we need. If your time spent abiding in God's Word has felt dry or mechanical lately, if it hasn't produced in you the changes that you believe God intends it to produce, stop judging the work of the Spirit through the Word and start trusting that work. God isn't asking you what your metrics are for measuring the effectiveness of His Spirit working through His Word. He's not looking for your assessment. He commands you to embrace His assessment. He promises you and me that that sanctifying work is going on day by day as we abide in His Word. Proverbs 2, verses 4 through 6, King Solomon said to his son, If you seek wisdom as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You don't get, you don't get to hidden treasures without work. But beloved, it's work that God blesses miraculously and richly. Bob mentioned in our discussion about this passage that Francis Chan recently posed the question, what have you read in the Bible lately that you don't like? <laughs> See, God didn't give us His Spirit and His Word to make us feel good. He gave us His Spirit and His Word to conform us to Christ. Finally, beloved, if we pick up our Bibles without praying, 
to acknowledge our utter dependence on the Holy Spirit to make us behold and know God through His Word, then we're coming to the Word with a very bad start. The deep things of God do not become known to us because we have resolved to lay hold of those things or because we study the Bible hard enough. The deep things of God become seared into our hearts and minds only by the work of the one who has known all there is to know of the thoughts and ways of God from eternity past. The second person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He wrote the Bible and he empowers the words that he wrote. Come to the word of the Lord to meet the Lord of the word and pray to God to make himself known through that word by the work of his spirit. God delights in being known by his kids. Let's pray. Loving Father, we can only begin to rightly express our gratitude to you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who works even now to make us know your thoughts and your ways more and more transformingly. And we can only begin to thank you rightly for our glorious Savior and Master, whose blood poured out on our behalf has opened up to us the way of access into the presence of the living God to behold you, to know you, to become partakers of the divine nature, and to dwell with you for all eternity, together with all the redeemed of the Lord. It is in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.